Welcome back, Warriors. Quainine de Luisi Pampometer, and I'm the host of this podcast, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties, and land back to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about the front lines of Indigenous resistance, resurgence, and cultural revitalization, then this is the podcast for you. And today's podcast is going to be with the matriarch of First Nation women. She has literally been one of my heroes from the very first time I heard her name, and I've been watching her lead the way for us this whole time. So stay tuned. You don't want to miss this amazing podcast. Welcome back to the Warrior Life Podcast. My name is Pam Palmiter, and I'm going to be your host on today's awesome show. And this podcast is going to be a very special one. And I realize that I pretty much consider all of these conversations with my heroes to be special, but this one is extra, extra, extra special because it's literally with one of my longtime heroes. I've been following her work for as long as I can remember. She's been challenging racism, sexism, and discrimination since before I was born, and she hasn't slowed down. I can't wait to welcome Dr. Jeanette Corbiere-Lavelle. Welcome to the show, Jeanette. It's so nice to be uh, invited oh. here and, and to and to talk with you and, and to share all the events that have taken place over the last 80 years because oh I gosh. turned 80 last summer. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to believe you're running around like a 20-year-old, all this stuff. Oh, and for people who don't know, there might be one person in the world who doesn't know who Dr. Jeanette Corbiere-Laval is, but she was one of the first Native women to challenge Canada's discriminatory registration provisions in the Indian Act. So that impacts whether someone can be registered as an Indian, a First Nations person, and be a member of their First Nation. And she's never stopped pushing them for change. I can't believe she's 80, but she's still at it. And were <laughs> it not for Jeanette and other warrior women that she has worked with and mentored and counseled this whole time, who were challenging sex discrimination no matter what anybody said, I today wouldn't be a member of my First Nation, nor would my kids. So she has literally impacted my life directly. She's traveled the whole world, linking arms with Indigenous women from everywhere, advocating at the United Nations for change. She's been recognized for her work a billion times with awards and honors, including the Lifetime Achievement Award for Inspire and the Order of Canada. I could literally go on all day about the reasons why I just love her, but I'm sure you'd rather hear from her. So Jeanette, thanks again, Miigwech, for being here uh, to talk about your incredible life journey. I know other people have talked to you. I think they could literally write a whole series of books about all the ways <laughs> in which you've helped us in your lifetime. And there still wouldn't be enough. So um, perhaps you could start by introducing yourself and what First Nation you're from. Thank 
So in my uh, own language, I've just introduced myself as Giwednang, uh, which in English is North Star. It was my uh, name that was given to me as uh, as a Nishnabekwe. And uh, from the Wikomikong First Nation situated on Manitoulin Island. And uh, when I think back over all these last few years, I am beginning to understand that uh, when we are born into this life and we come onto this planet, it's already been set up, and uh, I, I believe that your work is cut out for you because uh, I never would have believed that uh, being born uh, in my, on my community and after all these years, because there's only one road in, and the only non-Indian people we ever saw were, the, of course, the priests. The church was very prominent, and then my teachers were all, Sisters of St. Joseph, and then the health people. So that was the only offers of people that uh, we uh, saw and uh, recognized in our community. So it was, uh, I guess, definitely in a different era, different times, and uh, grew up on the reserve. That's where I went to school all my life until... I went to high school, and uh, my uh, I missed going to the residential school in Spanish by one year. The year I was supposed to go to high school is when they shut it down. So I escaped the residential school uh, saga. You know, unfortunately, my mother she went there, and uh, she she was ambiguous about it. But of course, the uh, isolation, being taken away from her family, and uh, just the trauma, because it was 100 miles away from our community, and uh, she was one of, not the oldest, but up, uh, you know, one of the first born in her family, so she got sent away when she was seven years old, and I had an older uh, aunt who was 10 years older than her, so the two of them went off to Spanish Indian residential school. And my older uh, aunt, her name was Catherine, she was sent to take care of my mom. So it, it was good in that uh, my mother got her education and she was one of the first teachers in our community. She went to what was called normal school in those days and uh, and she valued education. And because uh, she was there with my aunt, she kept her language and came right back home afterwards and taught for taught school uh, through Indian affairs. My dad, on the other hand, he, um, he never did go to school because uh, his parents, well, they were farmers, lived on the land, and they needed all the help they can get just for survival. So he didn't go to school and uh, spoke uh, language really fluently and being a farmer, we had a lot of physical work. And so I was caught in between the two worlds. 
My mom wanted us to get an education, spoke to us in English. My dad wouldn't talk to us in English, but uh, he valued being outside. He'd come inside. I'd be sitting there with my book, trying to do my homework, I guess. Come, he closed my book and says, there's nothing in there. You get outside to learn. So I got caught, but I managed. Yeah. <laughs> so having that kind of influence and then growing up, uh, on the reserve, finished my high school, and uh, the people prior to me, like older uh, friends, they were all sent to Toronto by Indian Affairs to go get a job in Toronto. And when I was 17, 18, that's where I went. I didn't uh, continue into post-secondary, but I went into uh, business college, so I was a secretary, basically. Went there, worked in insurance, and got tired of that. So I quit and uh, tried to figure out my life. What was I going to do? And that's when the Indian Friendship Centers were just opening up. So there was an ad, and it said uh, they were looking for a receptionist at the Indian Friendship Center, which was on Church Street in Toronto at the time. And I thought, hey, you know, this looks interesting. I applied. I got the job. But they needed a court worker more than a receptionist, I guess. So they said, this is what you're going to do. So I uh, went into working in the courts uh, with the justice system and uh, dealing with police and uh, my people bumping up against the justice system, getting incarcerated. And that was such an eye-opening experience for me because I was the only early 20 at the time and just had to learn on my own. And uh, it, it, I guess it really brought home the difference between my community, how we treat each other and what was happening in cities, in the urban life and uh, going, looking for people down in the poorer sections of Toronto and, starting to see people on homeless people and it was just so heartbreaking to see that and I go into city hall to the to the cells and uh, meet some of my relatives there and I have to intercede and say explain to the judge what happened because our people still uh having difficulty adjusting and not really speaking the language, English language, that is very well. So did my best just to alleviate some of that uh, impact, but so many hard stories. But that's a whole another, you were talking about another book, not experience, that's a whole different era and experience. But while I was in Toronto, uh, early, I was early 20s and, uh, we had a social club. It was, was called the Toronto Indian Club. And it was for uh, getting together, dances, meeting each other. And then all the young people who were in Toronto. We had the ones from up north. They would have been Cree. And we had uh, the OG Cree young people come. And then all the Nishnabek young people who were sent to Toronto for jobs or work. And then all the uh, Iroquoian young people from Six Nations, Alquasasne, and uh, in Southern Ontario. So we were all part of this Toronto Indian Club. And uh, 
that's how we manage it. And it was our social life because uh, we all gravitated toward that. We wanted to be together with our social lives and to meet others. And it was a good experience. During that period of time, a uh, friend of mine, Wilfred Pelcher, he was starting to do drumming. And uh, this would have been in the 60s, early 60s. And we would do uh, dances. Uh, you know, we had our own uh, outfits, regalia. And uh, he'd get us, oh, oh, I guess he'd call them gigs, eh? And he'd say, oh, we've been asked to go to the Royal York Hotel. They're going to give an Indian name. He said, we're going to give an Indian name to someone, a politician or someone up. And uh, so he, we'd all go down there and Johnny Esno was part of that. He ended up in the CBC and Chris Cromarty. And they were all doing our dances. And my my friends, we were all there. And we'd do it on stage and we'd give names to all these uh, politicians or uh, business people. And that was all good. But there's some um, little highlights to that that... Uh, I don't know if I should really say it, uh, <laughs> yes, but uh, but anyways, we'd be there giggling and laughing because Wilford would be drumming and drumming, and while he's drumming, he'd be singing, and he'd say in the shabam, he say, "Nishkemaba, gnovam." Look at this one because he'd be there. Abdua, he's feeling so uh, proud, but. Look, the way he'd, he'd make little funny comments, eh, and whatnot. And he said, but we're going to give him an Indian name. So we're, it's going to be uh, uh, Chief Shines Through the Cloud or something like that. But really, he'd say a different name. And we'd be there giggling and laughing because <laughs> he wasn't telling the truth, you know. But anyways, that was some of the funny things that happened. But in the course of that, there was another organization called the Indian Eskimo Association starting to look at who we are as a people. So I got to meet all these different people through Wilford and through the social club. And then we heard about the Company of Young Canadians, which was looking at uh, volunteers like uh, uh, I guess non-Indigenous young people. Uh, found out about the Company of Young Canadians, and I would have been <clears throat> 24, maybe now, 25, and uh, turn around. So I went to these workshops, and they were training us, and I found out about uh, human rights, about citizenship rights, and about uh, uh, other aspects of uh, justice program. And we didn't talk about this at home on the reserve, but I was getting exposed to all this through the Company of Young Canadians. And when we would get together, we I realized, you know, we have rights. We don't need to just listen to the Indian agent at home. He wasn't the, the king or the big ruler, mind you. Maybe he thought he was, but uh, that, that wasn't so. And uh, this would have been about 68, 69. And I went to Ottawa for the Company of Young Canadians. 
then I came back to Toronto, went back to the Friendship Center, and I was working with young people then. And we started up our own uh, newspaper. It was called TNT, Dynamite, because uh, that's what we called our newspaper, the Toronto Native Times. And uh, believe it or not, I still have a copy of it somewhere. I have to look for it, but it's uh, it, it's... It was really good. It was all our young people coming together. And we had volunteers from Canadian press who would come and help us how to do a newspaper. It was an exciting time, actually, in 68, 69. And during the course of the coffee houses, that was a big uh, coffee houses were in. Buffy St. Marie was uh, getting well known and we met her. You know, she was in Toronto at the time. Buffy even came to um, my reserve, uh, Wequem Kong, in 68, 69. And we were just starting to bring back the powwow, our own celebration through our women. And in our community, it was the women who were doing community activities because the men all had to leave. They went to uh, the quarry where they did uh, mining or they were in the bush working in wood you know, cutting poultries and stuff like that. And my dad would leave Sunday nights. He'd come back Friday nights. So it was the women who were at, at home taking care of things. And Rosemary Fisher, Wilford Pelch's sister, started uh, to recognize, because we were talking about who we are as a people. And her family, were, uh, they were musicians, so... And we would have different gatherings. And all our celebrations had gone underground, so to speak. They were they were forbidden by the church, by the Catholic Church, but but they were still taking place. So the women got together and they said, We can still do our dances. This is who we are. We'll do our own uh outfits and uh but we didn't have that sense of drumming or that uh, what else was part of that? So a group of women got in a car. My aunt was one of them, Helena Trudeau, and they drove out to Pipot Reserve in Saskatchewan, went out there seeking advice and uh, trying to find out how do they do their traditional ceremonies because we had them, but it was getting lost. We had to bring it back. And it was the women who were at the forefront of that. So it came back and uh, our people at home learned about dancing and about drumming and all the different dances. We had uh, a, what was called a prairie chicken dance. Here we called it the partridge dance. Then we also had the crow dance and just different animals. So we were learning all this. So that would have been in 68, 69. And coffee houses, I was starting to talk about. And at the when we had music and coffee houses, Yorkdale was just starting then too, eh? and all the musicians. Uh, some of them are still around. Um, I forget his name, but anyways, he's getting up there in age too. But he, they were all there around uh, Yorkdale. Uh, we had our own coffee house at the Friendship Center. And my friend from uh, Cape Croker, Andrew Salmon, he was going to school at old uh, Ryerson College. That's where he went because he was studying journalism. 
And David Lavelle was also in the same class with him. And they were both studying journalism and photography. And so when I spoke to Andrew, I said, we're going to have a coffee house, but we don't have any money, but we got space. So he says, I'm going to ask around at Ryerson and see who's a musician because they'd have to volunteer. So he brought David over and because uh, he was a musician and played music and sang a bit. And that's how I met David Lavelle in Toronto at one of our coffee houses. And so time passed and uh, in 1970, we were married. I married David Lavelle and I married him on April 11th, 1970. And being in love, you don't think about uh, what the implication. I knew that uh, some of my cousins, when they married off the reserve, we used to say then, if you marry off the reserve, well, then you lost your status rights, that you were no longer a member. But I didn't really think about the implications because we still saw them kind of thing, and they were my relatives. And... Uh, the time came after about three weeks after I was married in April, I got this letter and it came from Indian Northern Affairs and it said, uh, it also enclosed the check. I opened it up and I was surprised. Check, $35. I said, what? What's this about? The letter explained it. What it says is, Jeanette Corbier, enclosed, you will find a check for $35 as part of your uh capital monies fund, you know, that's what uh, I was entitled to. You will no longer, you are no longer a member of the Wikwemekong Unseated Indian Reserve. I thought, wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I got that in the mail. Eh? Wow. And it, it really hit home. And so David and I talked about, and we had already met Clayton Ruby through our work with Toronto Native Times and putting out different information to share with young people. And so we went over, we called him up and he says, yeah, you know, come and talk to me. We went over on a Thursday evening after work, I guess. I brought that letter to him and he says, he looked at it and he said, you know, says, if you want to do something about it, you have to decide tonight, tomorrow's the last day that we can appeal this decision. Wow. So it didn't, uh, take much thought, by all means, do do whatever. Next day he appealed it. Then that set a whole nother big experience. And that, that's when you were talking about the challenge. Eh? I didn't realize it was going to be so difficult. And it really was. I, uh, I had my family. And uh, when I started that, of course, I spoke to my parents and, uh, and my grandmothers and uh, said, this is what I'm going to do. I started it. And my dad says, this is what you believe in your heart. And you want to do it. Do it. She says, we will support you. My whole family said that day. And I uh, went to our chief, John Wakigishuk at the time. And he was also supportive. He says, no, he says, I've been trying to do this uh, with that section 12, uh, 12B. Yeah. I think I'm starting to forget all those little no, no. <laughs> Indian act, you know. He says, I've been trying to take that out of there because his own daughter was in the same situation. 
she didn't marry a non-native, she married a non-status Indian person. So that was his dilemma. And he says, I'm trying to do it within the government, within Indian affairs, working with the Indian agent, but wasn't going anywhere. So I had his support and, uh, and the time passed. And unfortunately, uh, on one of his trips to Toronto with some of our counselors and some young people, they went down there on their way back when they got back on the reserve. It was a terrible accident and he passed away in that accident. So there was the chief of my reserve who was supportive and said, yes, do whatever you have to do. He says, I'm doing it internally. You can go through the course because I told him about Clayton Ruby. And I didn't think about the outside implications, you know, where it would be going beyond my community. And then it went to county court. And when our court case, uh, Clayton took us to county court, when we went there, I thought it would just be me and my community. And we see because we had human rights and it wasn't uh, acceptable that someone from the outside should take away my right to belong to my community. And I, and this is who I am. I didn't know any other life. You know, that's my home, my relatives, that's where I belonged. And uh, at the county court, it was uh, another eye opener. The judge uh, said to me, I don't see what the problem here is. You know, you married a, a white man. You should be glad a white man married you, he told me. And I flabbergasted. This is in court. And then he carries on. He said, well, we all know what reserves are like. And we all know what happens to the women on the reserve. And I'm just there. And pretty soon I was almost starting to cry. And Clay looked at me, just winked. He said, don't worry, you know. Because uh, I guess he already knew where that court case was going. But he already had it. We're going next level, eh? But that was so uh, devastating to me, you know, to be able to go to court and to be told that. Because I believed in justice. I believed that uh, we all had rights and uh, just because I was a member of the Wikwemekong Unceded Reserve, I didn't think I was any less. But actually, now that I'm older, I look back and I realize the Indian Act, and you know this, Pat, that we're not even persons in the Indian Act. We're, we're just members eh, of uh, a community. So we didn't have any rights. But at the time, it didn't strike me. And I thought, it's me. It should be my choice. If I wanted to give up my status, that sense of belonging to my community, it should be up to me because uh, some people did it. And on the other discrepancy was if an Indian man who had status married a non-Indian, just the reverse of what happened to me, then uh, that uh, non-Indian woman, that white woman, she gained status and belonged to the community. Nothing happened to them. And all their children had all their, the rights, you know, that went along with that. When that happened to me, I lost everything. I did have some land in my name. That was gone. I got my check for $35, though. 
To this day, I don't know what I did with it. I lost it in the meantime. It would have been priceless. That, that, <laughs> that, oh, God. But uh, anyways, uh, Clayton, that was the first court case. Second court case was at the Federal Court of Appeal, three judges. And Clayton argued really well. Of course, he was excellent lawyer, so eloquent. Eh? And the three judges said, obviously discriminatory, but we didn't have the, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. This is in 1970, 71, this was taking place. And all we had was the Canadian Bill of Rights, which wasn't very strong, but it, it was still trying to recognize that people did have rights. So Clayton used that as his argument, and we won at the Federal Court of Appeal. And I thought, oh, good. But from the county court to the federal court, the media took on this. And, oh, my gosh, it was uh, it was like a wave coming across. I got so much hassle, and people were... Uh, well, we didn't have cell phones, but people I'd go to meetings because I asked the Union of Ontario Indians and some other political groups, would you support us eh, as women? They wouldn't even let us go in the meetings. We couldn't even say anything. It, it was really difficult. And I remember talking to the head of, uh, I don't know if I should be saying this names, but it was Chief Wilmer Nanjua. Mm -hmm. And uh, I looked up to him and I said, it would be so good if, uh, you know, the organization, the Indian men's organization could support us as women. We didn't have, I was just a member of my community and sort of starting to speak out. And uh, he said, no, he said, this is our tradition. You can't do it. No, no. If you marry a, a non-Indian, you're out of the community. Come to find out his wife was uh, non-Indian, so... Maybe that's what they were afraid of, you know, maybe. But but anyways, that's what we had to deal with. So no support from our organization that should have been supporting us. And so media got out and some women from Thunder Bay, they called me up by phone and they said, we heard about this. We heard what you're doing. We're going to pull a gathering. If uh, you could find a way to come to Thunder Bay, so... Uh, by then, David and I it was in our first year of marriage or second year. This all happened so quickly. And so he said, no, we'll find the money. So they found the money, and I went up there and met these women. And uh, we talked about, what are we going to do? We didn't have anything, no grants, nothing. And so we said, we'll do it on our own. We will do our own fundraising. And we came together. In 1971, we formed the Ontario Native Women's Organization, and I was the first president, specifically to look at uh, why are we dealing with this discrimination in the Indian Act. We wanted to take that section out of the Indian Act, so that's how we became organized. And uh, we didn't know about applying for grants. We didn't have an office, nothing. But we had that passion, that commitment, because the other women who were there had all been through the same thing. They were ostracized from their communities because some communities were really uh, difficult. They said, no, you made that decision. 
you can't come back, move away. And so we formed the Ontario Native Women's Organization. And then in 72, the Native women across Canada formed their own. By then, we were starting to recognize Secretary of State had a little bit of money. And I think we received 20000 or something the second year or so. And we were able to set up a little tiny office. And that's where our uh, Native women's organizations came to be. It was just through this uh, challenge of uh, losing our rights as women within our communities. So now, by 1973, we had our women's organizations right across Canada, like each province had one. Struggling, we didn't have much uh, money for organizing, but that commit that passion was there. And we would have demonstrations and protests. And I remember, uh, yeah, it, it, that was what was starting to happen. And uh, my daughter talks about, she says, oh, our first gathering is my mom would take us all. We'd go to meetings and we'd have our little strollers with the kids. And that, but that was how they learned politics. Yeah. And that sense of speak up. This is who you are. If you want to uh, do something for yourself and your people, you have to get out and do it. You know, don't depend on anyone else. So that uh, sense was there. And we we even had uh, Métis women, Inuit women, because we were all Indigenous women in our organization, and we all came together. We were sisters, mm. and, and right across, and it was such a good feeling. I went out to Alberta. Jenny Margett, she was there. She was one of the stronger women. She had been going through that. Her sister is uh, Pauline Shirt, still in Toronto, and uh, just going through this. And when we went to the Supreme Court in Canada in, um, must have been in the spring of 1972, um, I'm missing out on my dates here. Decision came down 1973, but that took a while. So it might've been in 72 that we went to Supreme Court. And I was telling you about, uh, we didn't have any support by our political groups. The, um, the men's organizations, and they all had provincial organizations, uh, was called the National Indian Brotherhood, the NIB. And uh, Indian Affairs gave them all kinds of money. So all the chiefs and leadership from across Canada came to Ottawa, and they all came to the Supreme Court case. And uh, they were all on one side, you know, when you go up to the Supreme Court. And there was just us, and we had to fundraise, we had bake sales to get some of our women from Toronto, got on the train or buses, because we didn't have cars either. We had to go public transport. We got to Ottawa, and then uh, another friend of ours, uh, her husband was uh, in the Liberal Party, I think, and she was able to get a big hotel room in the Royal Yard, but we didn't have any funds. So she, she got the biggest room she could, <laughs> lots of floor space. So that's where we were able to stay <laughs> in the Royal York and the floors. Well, we had our blankets and our coats. <laughs> and then some churches, some of the other women went to churches sleeping on the floor. 
But this was the difference. The chiefs were all there. They all had the hotel rooms. They looked really impressive in their regalia and everything. And they were on one side, and there was one, I, I, uh, I'm not going to mention his name, but he kept coming over and taunting us, say, telling us off and whatnot. And we just had to stand there and look at him, and we just got closer, tighter, because we had our own medicine people. We did our own ceremonies, and we had our own smudging. And uh, we just had to ignore it. But the difference, you could just see it, you know, the it would be like the, the ones that had all the money and the resources, and then the ones who didn't have anything. We didn't have anything. But that determination and that uh, willingness to do whatever to achieve our dream, our goal, we knew that uh, we were belonged to our communities. Our families were there. We were the mothers, the grandmothers. And we knew about our teachings that it was through the women that the future generations were, you know, were depending on. And we also knew that the women are the first teachers. So we had that language, all that cultural knowledge, that history. That was all dependent on us as women. But we also recognized that we needed the men. The men had their role. That sense of balance had to be there. And this is why a lot of our women were saying, we have to get back together. We can't let this... Uh, legislation divide us and separate it's causing too much hardship even to this day i believe there's still that barrier there because of this legislation and we're still dealing with it as you know we've achieved part of our goal part of our dreams but not completely we're still working on it and at that time uh it was so obvious that this was 1973 and uh, when the decision came down, we were there and uh, we were all just really, really focusing and praying. We lost by one vote at the Supreme oh. Court, nine uh, judges eh, at the Supreme Court. But that was the other eye-opening experience for me because sitting there, I must have been 26, 27 at the time. And they're supposed to be so impressed, eh, all these judges. Half of them slept through the arguments because they were all old. They were 90, I'm sure. But uh, Thor Alaskan was the new addition uh, from Thunder Bay. He spoke so well, and he was one of the younger ones there. And he managed to get uh, three judges to support it. So the vote was, uh, he was supporting our court case. So we had four votes for us. And Judge Ritchie, who had earlier changed the Indian Act. He was on the opposition, five of them, so we lost by one vote. Mm. And that darn judge, he he says, no, we can't change the Indian Act and all this and that. But he did change it when they offered uh, liquor, alcohol to Indians on reserve. That was okay, but not to give us status. So anyways, that was... One another eye-opening experience of the justice system. So for that was seventy-three. 
But as women, and you know this, oh, just one barrier, find a way, we'll get around. <laughs> we kept on going with our women's organization, advocate, speaking out, and we got more support from other women's groups and some from church uh, women's organizations. Just kept on going, and gradually uh, we could sense a difference. And thank goodness uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau brought in the new constitution then. And our women were also on that consultation, you know, going to uh, Charlottetown to talk about that. Our women managed to squeeze in there, too, when they were talking to the leadership and the chiefs. And Harry Daniels was uh, one of the real advocates for us as uh, women's organizations. And uh, he was with the Congress of Aboriginal People. But he was in, his organization wasn't recognized uh, by the National Indian Party, but they were consulted. So he was able to go talk to the members of parliament and the ministers and, and the prime minister at the time. And so a little bit more headway was made there. And uh, when the constitution came in in uh, 1982, when we had a new constitution, there was still that consultation going on. But our legislation in the Indian Act still wasn't uh, changed. We had to wait until 85. And as we all know, then that particular section, Section 12.1b, was removed from the legislation. Because they had to. Because the new Charter of Rights and Freedoms said couldn't discriminate. So uh, they had to take that section Oh, they, Section 12 on B. But once again, it was so minimal. They didn't give us back our full rights. I was still second class. I was able to uh, gain my status back along with Mary Tuax earlier. She had been working on that from the Quebec Native Women's Association. And she used to talk to me because she was such a dear friend. She was my mentor. I'd be down and say, oh, you know, can't do this anymore. But no, no. And she was always so positive. And she said, my wish, she said, my dying wish is that I get my status back and I'll be back and I can be buried with my people in my own community. And that was Kanawagi. It used to be so heartbreaking, but she was always so positive, you know. And uh, when... Uh, 1985 came under Section Bill C-31, mm -hmm. and she was able to get her status back, even though it was secondary, but it still enabled her to return to Ganawagi, and she was buried there. I felt so good when I heard that, that she was able to do that. At the time, I wasn't thinking about where I was going to be buried, but I was thinking about my children and their rights, eh? Because they were just... Uh, well, in 85, Nimki would have been 15 and Mimi would have been, uh, well, younger. And I had William. I have uh, two boys and one girl. And their status wasn't uh, up to par either. We were always secondary, you know, on the reserve. And we would have those taunts. And they'd say, oh, you're just Bill C-31s. You're not real status people. Some would say it. And uh, come to find out the Indian Act, it was all under Bill C-31. We were all Bill C-31 people, you know, but didn't realize that. 
Anyways, the years went by and we still kept on going. And you would remember those years talking and talking. And uh, and then, uh, thank goodness, our women. Then the next one, no, it was Sandra, eh? Sandra Loveless, who did that walk. And, and she was able to make some changes to at the United Nations, that the United Nations was getting interested. What is going on in Canada? And they were telling Canada they can't have that, you know, in our legislation. Canada still didn't do very much. It took, takes so long to look at what we would think as rights of people, you know. It shouldn't be any question, but taking all these years. But then when you look back at it, realize what was, why was there an Indian Act? What was the concept? And it was genocide. Get rid of all these Indians. We can do it all these ways. Get the women away. Get, get the educated Indians away. The nuns who are, or people who are religious, all these. So they were all being thrown by the wayside. That was what the Indian Act was doing. And uh, 1985, that with uh, Bill C. 31, it, it rectified just one of some sections, anyways. But then Sharon MacGyver, well, Sandra, she got the attention of the UN. And then Sharon MacGyver looking at grandchildren. And that was another big dilemma. And I just was so pleased that uh, she took on that challenge, you know, for her grandchildren because her brother wasn't affected and his children, but hers, you know, and we all know that story. And then that, uh, so that was Sharon MacGyver. So now we're getting up into uh, this day and age. So this started in 1970 and here we are in uh, 2022, still dealing with that Indian Act because as women, uh, people who lost our status, uh, even though some of us were able to get it back or you got enfranchised, you were able to become members back, still wasn't rectifying the the dilemma that was there. And uh, that's what we're dealing with right now. And, and so still have to keep pushing forward. And I really would like to believe that our current uh, government and our current politicians would uh, recognize that and, and do something, do something while you can. We're looking at the rest of the world and we're talking about uh, the wars that are taking place in Europe, how they're just imposing and dictatorships. Well, here in Canada, we have an opportunity to... Uh, our politicians can make positive change in government right now. If they have the will, if they want to, we can eliminate all that discriminatory sections in the Indian Act. We can recognize our treaties, the treaties where uh, we're still only getting $4 a year as part of the treaties that were signed a uh, hundred years ago. You know, it's uh, all these things can be done away with it. And let's recognize that we have those rights, the rights to our resources, the rights to our land, the rights to a good environment. We have the rights to clean drinking water. Once again, it's our women who had to really 
take a stand for that thing. Josephine Mandaman, who's from Wiki, another warrior. I loved her so much. She was so strong. I've got her uh, photo here and uh, that she gave to me in her copper pails. And I still have all my copper pails here, just from her, her influence eh? in protecting the water and all the teachings that go with that. So it's, uh, there's um, just so much happening. And I guess what I'll, I'll close by saying that uh, as women and just by being exposed and talking to our elders, recognizing our teachings, the role we have towards each other mm-hmm. and for each other and showing that respect, all those uh, grandfather teachings and the teachings of the moon and our women and that sense of love and commitment to not only now, but to those future generations. That's all happening right now. And we need to bring that back and we can do it through uh, nationhood. And that's what I believe we have to stress now. If we want to be strong, we have to act as a nation, which means we have a little bit of land left, but we have enough. That, and we can also should be able to expand that. So we have the land, we have our people, recognize our people. Any Indian Anishinaabeg nation, we did all our work and we said, if you can trace your lineage, your ancestry through one parent on either side, go back or have confirmation from your community or your church records that shows that you are a part of our nation, you are our people. We say those who belong. Mm. And I say me, individual, the Bendalgos, I belong, my people. So we've got that, our people, we've got the land, and then we would have uh, our teachings, our history, and uh, what else in nationhood? Uh, Spirituality, we've got our traditions, and I, I, I believe that uh, if we can get our young people to recognize that and get others from the outside, this is that reconciliation aspect. If they would recognize the truth, what has happened to us, if they can also have those principles, that sense of uh, their moral uh, values and, and the principles of uh, nationhoods, they should be able to recognize we are a nation of people and we also want to accept that responsibility and it'll be up to us then to share that and teach our young people. So we will have our strong young people with that sense of commitment. They will do what's best and the environment we need to protect that, it's so crucial. And if, if we can do that, others can join us, then all Canadians will have uh, a future to look forward to. If we continue going the way we are, who knows what's going to happen? We're having mm-hmm. difficulty right now with diseases and breathing and having clean water. But it's not too late. We, we can work together. But I really uh, pray every day I offer my Sema to uh, the Creator and to our guardians. My clan is the bird clan, the blackbird 
Black Hawk. And uh, every day, just say, give us that strength to stay on this road, walk this path, and uh, leave something for those grandchildren, those great-grandchildren, and all the others to come. Yeah. I truly believe that. Got to do this in the next 10 years, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my gosh, Jeanette. I could listen to you for the next four weeks nonstop. Just- oh, I got so many other little stories that happened over the years, you know, but. Good. Oh my goodness. Like, and it's funny that you would talk about Mary Tuax early, who was this amazing warrior yeah. being so yeah. positive because all of your messages that I've ever heard comes from a place of love and compassion and you have hope for the future. And the reason why is because you've created the future that we're in today. I mean, think you're literally the grandmother and great grandmother to thousands of first nations women and kids that were brought back to their communities because of the foundational work that you did and i know me personally my kids and i owe you so much Uh and you know we always we always say okay we've got some grandmothers here we've got uh and one of the the most foundational is jeanette corbier laval and (laughs) Everything you've oh, done. Yeah. And I'm telling That's you, if so I was funny. the Anishinaabeg Nation, I couldn't imagine a better commissioner for citizenship than <laughs> someone like you who's like, we need to welcome all of our people back home. Mm-hmm. Just wonderful. Well, I, I can't thank you enough for coming on this so podcast. <laughs> you're just uh you're a wonderful person. I'm going to keep following you for the next many decades because you just seem to be never ending, which is wonderful. <laughs> And I hope you come back on because well, I know once once people well, hear we'll this, they're going to be yeah. like, bring her back. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, you never know. Our we will get together because we're we're part of this whole sisterhood and yes. as women, grandmothers, aunties, yeah. uh, we're, we're always connected. You know, yeah. for exactly. our people to come. Yeah. And you Me help keep us that way. Miwet. Thank you so much. And thank you to all the listeners or the viewers who take time to listen to the voices of our elders, of our activists, our warriors, our advocates, uh, everywhere that you see Native women, Native people leading the way. Please support them in any way you can. Follow their calls to action and share this podcast far and wide. Everyone in the planet needs to hear Jeanette's voice. Thank you so much. Uh, Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Bye.